Well, over the course of the last month and a half or so, we've been walking through a sermon series we've entitled Faces in the Crowd, Encounters on the Road to the Resurrection. We've, we've only been able to touch on a few. There were so many intentional encounters and conversations that Jesus had in his last week as he, as he moved towards the resurrection. I don't, I don't know if they've all uh, struck you the same way, but, but my guess is that there's been maybe one or two of these conversations that we've had that, that really kind of spoke to you like the others didn't. And what we'd like to invite you to do is uh, on your way home today or maybe over lunch, even if you have family and friends at lunch that, that haven't been here for this sermon series, I'd encourage you, I'd invite you to, to just share what has been for you the most meaningful encounter that we've discussed. Maybe it was Mary or maybe it was Barabbas or the, the Greeks or uh, any number of them that we've gone through, including today's, but we want to give you a chance to, to talk about that with each other and, and give evidence of what God's been doing in your life. I think for me, the most significant uh, encounter or face in the crowd is, is actually today's. Today, we're going to talk about Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea is best known for taking Jesus' body off the cross and burying it in his own tomb. I think for me, at least in this season of life, the reason that this face in the crowd, this encounter is most significant isn't because Joseph risked life and limb, uh, reputation, to identify with an accused criminal, although he certainly did do that, It's not just because he gave up a significant, if I could say, commodity, a a tomb, a family tomb, so that that Jesus' body had a place to rest. To me, the most significant thing isn't even that Joseph said, um, I know that most of Jesus' followers were poor and didn't have a lot of money, and they probably can't do anything, so I think I'll do something. I mean, those things are all significant. But what speaks to me most in this season of life about Joseph of Arimathea is that he had a tomb, he bought a tomb, and he put Jesus in it, I think, not knowing what would happen next because it was the right thing to do. And we know the end of the story. Joseph didn't, though. We know that when he introduced Jesus into that place of death, it was only the beginning. That from that place of death would come life. That God was going to fill that tomb up with life. And the fact that Joseph introduced Jesus into that place of death at all reminds me that the places in my own life that are marked with death, that are filled with death, that remind me of death, is just a beginning. And if I'll introduce Jesus into that, if I'll bring God into those places that I've tried to bury and put a rock over and put pretty flowers around to pretend like it's okay, God's going to do something incredible. And if I don't miss my guess, it's not just me who has places in my life that that are marked by and identified and and smell like death. 
I, I would bet there's some of us here who would say, you know what, Pastor, there is a relationship in my life, and, and I knew it was going to come to an end, and then boom, all of a sudden it was cut off, and, and I don't know what to do. And it just feels empty. I'm confused, and I'm hurt, and I'm angry, and I'm mad. And it's like a part of me has died. And again, if I don't miss my guess, there's some here today who would say, you know what, Pastor, I've got hurts, and I've got hang-ups, and I've got habits that, that are, I, I just don't know what to do with them. I can't control them. Every time I think I've got them licked, they come back, and, and these things are going to be the end of me. They're going to they're kill my marriage. They're going to kill me. If, 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 if something doesn't happen here, I'm done. I imagine if we, were to, if we were to write it down on a piece of paper, there would be so many ex-spouses and ex-business partners and, and ex-employers and employees and, and so many ex-friends and ex-neighbors and ex-pastors and ex-church friends. And, and there'd be so many exes that if we compiled all of them here that we'd be going, I don't know why it's only one letter in the alphabet. I mean, the reality is we all deal with death in life. But Joseph of Arimathea reminds us, if we're willing to introduce God into that area of death, it's not just darkness that we're going to experience. The life will come forth from that area we thought was dead. And instead of death ruling the day, life is going to rule the day. Amen. And not just life eternal life. And so as I think about Joseph of Arimathea, as I think about this man, and, and it's not just a story, but this encounter, I want to say, what, what can I do to position myself to see that kind of miracle? What can I do to position myself so that when I'm ready to introduce God into my areas of death, whatever they are, I can have a sense that I'm going to experience life. And so today, we want to look at the life of Joseph of Arimathea and, and who he was and what God accomplished through him, believing that God did it then, but God does it now too and wants to do it. And so let's start with looking at, at who Joseph was. What, what, what was he like? What was his character? You have a, an insert in your bulletin. Pull that out, if you will. And we're going to be looking at several scripture passages because Joseph is one man who's mentioned in all four Gospels. And so we're going uh, to kind of look at passages from those, and you're welcome to look them up in your scripture, but they are printed here on your notes if you'd like to follow along. So let's talk about um, uh, who was this man, Joseph of Arimathea. What was it that made him tick? First of all, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, yet willing to submit to what God was doing in his life. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, he was willing to submit to what God was doing in his life. Notice Mark 15, 43 here on your notes. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. This verse, just this one verse, is incredibly scandalous. Let me, let me help you understand why. First of all, we have Joseph of Arimathea, who's a prominent member of the council. Now, what is the council? Yeah, we told you, like, in the fill-in-the-blank thing. It's the Sanhedrin. Okay, now, if you were here last week, you remember we talked about the Sanhedrin and their work in, in crucifying Jesus and, and falsely accusing Jesus of a crime and then, and then kind of, you know, 
fudging the lines and saying that it deserved death and then working to make sure that that happened. This is the Sanhedrin. They're the religious leaders in Jesus's day. And, uh, and Mark says here, and we're going to find out that all of the Gospels agree, this isn't like Mark didn't misspeak, that Joseph of Arimathea was not only on the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will, but he was a prominent member. These are the folks who are looking to kill Jesus. And on the other hand, Mark kind of pulls back the curtain and says, but, but Joseph was waiting himself for the kingdom of God. That's a subversive way of saying that that Joseph, this prominent member of the Sanhedrin, he'd become a follower of Jesus Christ. This is scandalous that the group that tried to kill Jesus has a member on it who's a follower of Jesus. What does that look like? How did did that happen? I mean, these two things just don't go together. There's no way we could ever imagine them going, we wouldn't make this up. I mean, when you write fiction, you don't write it like this. This just doesn't happen. It's not believable. In the last week of Jesus' life, he said some things to make sure, I think, to make sure that the Sanhedrin would work to put him to death. Listen to some of the things Jesus said to the Sanhedrin. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you religious leaders, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor would you let those who are trying to. He said, woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, Sanhedrin, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you've succeeded, you make them twice a son of hell as you are. This is what Jesus said to these guys. He called them hypocrites, blind guides, blind fools, you snakes, you brood of vipers, he said. On one occasion, Jesus said, um, woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, Sanhedrin. You are like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. On the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. We don't have it from any of the gospel readers, but here's what I think happened. I think at one point, when when Jesus was railing on the religious leaders, Joseph Arimathea was in the crowd. I think he heard Jesus say that. Woe to you, religious leaders. You look good on the outside. You're prominent. But on the inside, it's only death. I think Joseph came to the point where he went, he's right. He's right. I do look good. I'm prominent. I'm a religious leader. People look up to me. But when things get really quiet, I know who I am. And something needs to change. It's quite an admission. Yeah. It's quite an admission. It is. I think from that day forward, Joseph began to follow Jesus. He was willing to do what Jesus asked him to do. He was, he was willing to acknowledge that inside he was full of dead man's bones. He was willing to submit to God's will for his life. Now, what does that look like? I think we have more to see what that looked like based on who Joseph was as a man and, and his character, but don't miss the fact that, that even though he was aligned with Jesus' enemies, 
Something in his heart was different. He was submitting to God's will. Number two, he was a good and upright man, willing to take a stand for what was right, even when it wasn't popular. Notice what Luke writes about Joseph of Arimathea. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man. Sound familiar? Same story. So, so we're getting a sense that this is, this is accurate. Verse 51, who had not consented to their decision, the Sanhedrin's decision, and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, which is why he's called Joseph of Arimathea, like I'd be Earl of Goshen. Okay, you got that. And he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. I know you were confused because you thought I was Duke of Earl, but it's actually Earl of Goshen. So, so here, again, Luke says he's on the Sanhedrin. He's aligned with Jesus' enemies. We know from Mark that his, his heart is submitted to, to Jesus Christ and to God. But notice what Luke says. He did not consent to their decision or their action. It's a small phrase. We, we usually skip right over it, but, but what does that mean? Let's tease that out. Let's, uh, let's, let's imagine that when Caiaphas called a middle-of-the-night meeting to, um, you know, to, uh, to doctor this thing up, to make Jesus look different, this, this kangaroo court, if you will, it was probably Joseph who said, why are we breaking our own law to capture a lawbreaker? When the Sanhedrin brought before their body in this, in this middle-of-the-night court false witnesses who twisted Jesus' words and who twisted his actions, it was probably Joseph who, who spoke up and asked questions to, to test the veracity of their testimony. When Caiaphas said, all right, there we have it. There's a motion on the floor in a second to uh, condemn Jesus to death. All in favor say aye, and all the ayes vocalized. And, and Caiaphas said, all, all opposed say nay. Joseph may have very, very well been the only one in the room who said nay. Maybe Nicodemus. Maybe Nicodemus. Right. You know that Nicodemus was a follower yeah. of Christ. Minority report. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. When, uh, when he did that and, and the other guys, the other men, the other vipers, the other jackals on the Sanhedrin started to look at him and said, oh, you better change your vote. You'll be off the Sanhedrin for this. We'll excommunicate you. It's probably Joseph who said, you do what you gotta do. I'm gonna do what I gotta do. You see, Luke says that, that um, he did not consent to their action and their decision. And that's courage. And can you imagine how the God in heaven gets giddy when he sees someone with that kind of courage? When he sees a, a man or a woman or a, or a teenager at school or, or, or a child on the playground who says, you know what, I'm done. I'm going to do what I know is right no matter what it costs me. Can you imagine how God starts like rolling up his sleeves? Come on, angels, we got to go. We got a message to deliver, and this is going to be a humdinger. They ain't never going to see this coming. You see, Joseph was a man who, although he looked on the outside like perhaps he wasn't, his heart was submitted to God. And, uh, and while everyone else was doing the wrong thing, he was, he was willing to stand up for what was right. Not only was he submitted and standing up for what was right, but, but notice the third thing here. He was a disciple of Jesus, willing to simply do what he could. 
He was a disciple of Jesus willing to simply do what he could. Notice what Matthew writes about Joseph. As the evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, and he went away. So we, here we have a man who did everything he could to prevent the death of Jesus, but ultimately he couldn't. He was the minority report. He was the lone or one of the few voices that said no. So he couldn't stop the death, but, but he could do everything to oppose the sentence. And, and again, we have, we have Joseph, as we read between the lines, um, we see him in the crowd, not able to stop the crowd from demanding Jesus be crucified and Barabbas be released. But we see um, Joseph willing to take the body after the fact so that it wasn't just thrown in a pauper's grave or so it wasn't heaved you know, down into the, into the town dump, if you will. We, we see him in the crowd as the soldiers began to, to cast lots for, for Jesus' clothes, and he couldn't do anything about that. He couldn't stop that disrespect. But you know what he could do? He could get a linen cloth, and he could, he could honor Jesus' body by wrapping it in a linen cloth as it came off the cross. He, he, he really, he, he couldn't bring Jesus back to life. And I imagine that as he held him in his arms when he took him off the cross, he wanted so badly to, for Jesus to wake up to bring him back to life, but he couldn't do that. But he could give his body a place to lie. He probably couldn't do a whole lot to, to prevent wild animals or, or, or the Romans or the Sanhedrin from, from stealing the body or you know, doing something to deface it, but, but he could roll a stone in front of the tomb to at least provide some security. And as he buried Jesus' body, Joseph probably knew that there was really nothing he could say to, to offer hope to the disciples who were now hopeless. He, he probably couldn't do anything to comfort Mary and the other women who were at the tomb crying. He couldn't give them any answers. But what Joseph could do was he could go back home to observe the Sabbath because that's what God had called him to do. He could be faithful to what he knew that God wanted him to do. Joseph reminds us that we can't do everything. Sometimes we can only do what we can do. And it may seem small, but when we're willing to simply do what we can do and trust God with the rest, what God does is epic. I mean, like, life-changing. In this case, history changes in, in ways that, that we can't predict when we're saying, well, here's, here's what I can simply do. You take it, Father, and do what you need to do. It's incredible who this man is. And how many people, how many of us often will say things like, you know what, I'm not a Billy Graham. I'm, I'm not making an impact. All I'm simply doing is doing laundry, doing dishes, raising little kids, watching my grandkids, I, I'm not doing anything that, that significant. You know what? Joseph of Arimathea would have said that. All I'm doing is just taking his body 
and putting it in the grave, and it's probably not that important, but interestingly enough, years later, four gospel writers remember that. All four of them. Yeah. One of the few. Exactly. Don't ever minimize what you're doing for the Lord. Your tendency will be to compare what you do with what other people do. When you do that, you're always going to lose because you can find people that are making more significant impact for the kingdom than you are. Especially if you believe it off Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. And everybody's Jesus Christ there. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's perfect. Exactly. I want you to notice in your note outline, I just want to share with you a couple quick insights. But I want you to look at... uh, at this prophecy from the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. You remember that passage, don't you? Look at this verse here. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. What does that mean? Let me unpack that with you just for a moment. The first, there's two, there's two uh, segments of that sentence. First section... He was assigned a grave with the wicked. What does that mean? When you were a criminal and died on the cross, Rome, who only Rome had the power to execute, not the Jews. Rome said, if you die on a cross, you will be assigned this location for your body. The Valley of Hinnom. The Hinnom Valley, from which we get the word Gehenna, hell. It's not far from where we're going to be staying in Jerusalem. Judy and I stayed at Jerusalem University College, and as we looked out our window, we looked into the Hinnom Valley. The Hinnom Valley was the garbage dump for all of Jerusalem. People would throw their refuse, garbage, even the streets would tend to be angled in such a way that they would empty out into the Hinnom Valley. What they would also do there is that's where they would put the the dead carcasses of people who had been crucified. And so you'd have these birds, these ravens, you'll see a lot of ravens, those who are going to go with us this September, and they would be picking at the bodies, wild animals, jackals, things like that that are still in in, uh, Israel, they would eat the bodies. There would be fire, Jesus says that, that the fires of Gehenna never go out. People understood exactly what he meant by that. Because in the Hinnom Valley, there's constant fires. It's like a garbage dump. That's where Rome assigned criminals, Isaiah 53. What's the second half of the verse say? Somehow, it says, though even though that's where he was to be assigned, that's not where he was buried. He would be buried with a rich man. The prophecy makes no sense when you read it. It's an oxymoron. How could you be assigned a place where criminals get buried, but then you get buried with rich people? Enter Joseph of Arimathea. He was a rich man. He had a rich man's tomb. And suddenly, when Joseph enters the picture... Prophecies fulfilled. Hmm. Look at the next prophecy I've written there. Verse 
This is the one that, uh, Pastor, let me see your note outline. I don't have it. Matthew 12, 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Wait a minute. Jesus is buried on Friday. Easter's on Sunday. That's two days. You don't understand how Jews keep time. Remember, Joseph went and asked for the body of Jesus before sundown on Good Friday. Because remember, the day begins at sundown, which means Jesus had to be in the ground on Friday, which, by the way, also includes Thursday night, the way Jews think. The day had begun Thursday night. So for Jesus to be buried at noon on Friday, the way Jews reckon time is, he is in the ground Thursday night, Friday, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. But because he was resurrected Sunday morning, they also consider that the entire, there's your three days. Problem is, he has to be in the ground before 6 p.m. Friday. We've got a problem. Jesus is crucified, dies. What happens to the disciples? They scatter. Everybody runs. The clock's ticking. In order for prophecy to be fulfilled, he's got to be in the grave before 6 p.m. How's that going to happen? Enter Joseph of Arimathea. So Joseph goes to Pilate, asks for the body. The request is granted, takes the body, joins with Nicodemus. He's buried in Joseph's grave prior to Shabbat that begins at 6 p.m. Friday. He just hits the deadline. And what's interesting This is going to be point number one. He had no awareness what he was doing. I don't think Joseph was was thinking, wait a minute, Jesus is going to be tossed into the Hinnom Valley. But the prophecy said he's supposed to be buried in a rich man's tomb. Hang on, I'm a rich guy. I've got to, I better hurry and get this thing worked out so I can fulfill prophecy. Wait a minute. Jesus is supposed to be three days and three nights in the tomb. Dang, I've only, I've only got a few hours. I've got to fulfill this prophecy. If it's not me, who? He had no awareness of that. What he was doing, as Earl said, because he was walking with the Lord, God used him in ways he wasn't even aware. And God's up in heaven going, well done, buddy. The prophecies written about Jesus, just check off two more. Thanks. You pulled it off. Didn't even know it. I love it when that happens. I want you to know that when you're walking with the Lord, doing your best, 
doing your what every day what you do. God's going to use you in ways of which you're totally unaware. You'll remember I shared this about a year ago. When I first started teaching school, Bluffton, Indiana, this would be 1975, a long time ago. First class was a class of sixth graders. One of the little boys in the class, his nickname was Pug. He'd already been held back. His parents, mom and dad, were afraid he'd be held back again. And so I inherited this little guy as an 11-year-old. Take a liking to him. And I remember Pug saying to me, Mr. D, I'm going to be like you one day. Ended up becoming one of my favorite students. Judy, you remember him, just a sweet kid. Goes to junior, he's a good, good basketball player. We led our sixth grade team to the championship because Pug was our starting guard. Graduates from high school and says, you know what I'm going to do, Mr. D? I'm going to become a teacher, just like you. So he began calling me. Some of you remember me telling this story. He, began, he would begin calling me every year on my birthday. Mr. D, I'm going to college. I'm going to be a teacher just like you. Happy birthday. <laughs> a few years later, I remember getting a telephone call. Mr. D, I got my first teaching position. I'm teaching sixth grade just like you. A few years later, he called me. He goes, Mr. D, I wonder if you'd come down to Eastside Elementary School in Bluffton, Indiana. I wonder if, if you'd t talk to our faculty. The reason I'm calling you is that I'm assistant principal. Years went by, I got another call on my birthday every year. Guess what, Mr. D, I'm principal. I got my own school. And then I'll never forget... Four or five years ago, he calls me on my birthday and says, Hey, Mr. D, I'm superintendent of schools in Upland, Indiana, by Taylor University. And Pastor, what you don't understand this morning, because you've heard me tell that story before. Sure. One hour ago, I get a text message, and Pastor Earl, I want you to read it out loud. This is a text message from Pug, Brett Garrett. I got one hour ago as I'm standing, getting my sound. 9.52, actually, almost an hour and a half ago. Happy Easter, Mr. D. He is risen. I hope that you and your family have a great day. And what did I respond? Thanks, Brett. Preaching for about 45, oh, in about 45 minutes. Preaching in about 45 minutes. And what is his last response this morning? Awesome. I'll be praying for you and for hearts to turn to Christ. While you're getting ready to come into service, I get a text message from this little boy of 11 years old who's now superintendent of schools in Upland, Indiana. Mr. D, I'll be praying for you this morning. That hearts will turn to Christ. I had no awareness as a 22-year-old starting teaching that I was making any kind of impact in these kids' lives. I was just teaching them spelling words and trying to... <laughs> 
when you're walking with the Lord and thinking that, I'm just, what am I doing? You have no idea how God's using you in the lives of other people, do you? Secondly, I want you to, we're going to be closing with this. I want you to look at this principle, please. Isn't it interesting when you're walking with the Lord how God galvanizes your commitment and increases your boldness? As Pastor Earl said, Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple. Didn't want to tell anybody. Why not? Because if he was found out, he would be kicked off the Sanhedrin. And by the way, if you're on the Sanhedrin and ever kicked off, it's kind of like being shunned by the Amish. Nobody can do business with you anymore. It's a steep price. It's very, very costly. Not only personally, but economically. And incidentally, another detail of which you're unaware, only family members could ask for bodies. Only family members could ask for bodies. So what does he do? He goes to Pilate, which was a bad idea, humanly speaking. By the way, I'd like the body. Really? What for? I just think it, he deserves a proper burial, and I'm, um, I'm one of his followers. Joseph, you're a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. We're trying to snuff out this movement. What are you doing? May I have his body? I'd like to bury it. Where are you going to bury it? You're going to take it over to the Valley of Hinnom? I'm going to put it in my own tomb. Joseph, I'm going to re I'll, be, I'll be remembering this. What are you doing? For him to take this step showed incredible courage. And by the way, as Pastor Earl so eloquently mentioned, he had no idea thinking, you watch, buddy. Hey, Pilate, you know what? I'm going to put this in the grave, and guess what's going to happen in a couple days, dude? You're going to be the one with egg on your face. He's coming back from the grave. Had no idea. He did what was right, what was appropriate. He was obedient and did what he could. And isn't it interesting? You can see this man's growth. I used to be a secret disciple, but you don't want to know something right now? I don't care. I'm going to take a stand for Christ. I'm going to be his follower. Even though he's dead, I'm going to do the right thing. And isn't it interesting? God emboldens this man. God's going to do that for you too. Wherever you are, God's, you know, you take a stand for the Lord. And I'm trying to do that at Niles High School. You take a stand for the Lord. God will give you increased boldness. And when people know that you're a Christian, they'll be watching. You know what? And you can be an example wherever God's planted you. Amen? Easter truth, because he is alive, he can do something amazing in me and through me. If you don't believe me, ask Joseph of Arimathea, huh? I want you to bow your head with me as we pray. Father, we want to thank you for the life of this man, a life that seemed insignificant, but four gospel writers made sure it was significant. And Lord, many of us tend to be reluctant and reticent and think, I don't know what I'm doing. 
how can God use me? Some days I just put one foot in front of the other. And yet, Lord, you were using this man in amazing ways. This is resurrection truth for us today. May the power of the resurrected Christ, Lord, give us renewed boldness to live for you and be used by you. We thank you for what this day means. And when we walk out of here, we can have confidence that you will continue to use us in ways even when we're totally unaware. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.